Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill podcast. Hey, what's up? Mr. Bill here. Welcome to the Mr. Bill podcast. Uh, I don't have any guests this week because of the coronavirus quarantines happening currently in California, meaning that I'm not supposed to leave my house and nobody else is supposed to leave their house. So um, yeah, nobody's leaving their house basically, which means I can't be in anybody's company or nobody can be in my company. Uh, and therefore, I can't have a guest because I only like to do the podcasts in person. Uh, which might have to change in the coming weeks, I think. I might have to actually start mm, potentially doing some guests on Skype and stuff like that. I don't particularly like doing that. I, I feel disengaged usually personally when, I, when I'm when i on a Skype call or something. I don't know why. It just doesn't feel like a real conversation to me. It feels like I can be tabbing around behind the call and like just doing other shit and not really engaging. Um, I don't know. I've just never really found... Uh, Skype calls or Discord calls or Zoom calls or whatever to um, to really work for me in terms of having like a proper engaging conversation. But um, I mean, I don't know how long this uh, this coronavirus stuff is going to last. Hopefully, I don't know. I saw some reports of people in China being allowed to to leave their houses again, and the quarantine sort of seems like they're on the arse end of it over there, which is good. Uh, so hopefully. Uh, I don't know. I know that the the guidelines for the quarantine were, were a little stricter. Like when people leaving their houses, they were having to get their temperatures taken and stuff like that. And if their temperature was at all high, they'd get sent to a fever clinic and so on. <clears throat> so I know that uh, their guidelines were a little stricter, but uh, yeah, um, hopefully we can get over it just as quickly as they did, I guess. All right. So I asked the internet um, to send me some questions and I got about 50 emails, which is crazy. And each email seems to have about, I don't know, anywhere from one to 10 questions in it. So I'm going to try and get through as many of them as I can. And uh, perhaps we can do a similar thing next week. And if not, perhaps we can um, get a guest on on Zoom or Skype or something. I've had a few of my friends uh, volunteer to be guests on Zoom or Skype. So maybe, I don't know, send me a comment on the post of wherever you're watching this youtube or soundcloud or whatever and um and let me know if that's something you're interested in if it's better to have no podcast or potentially just slightly less lesser quality podcasts um, where i'm talking to somebody on zoom maybe we can try all that and if it's good uh perhaps we can keep doing it for the <clears throat> for the duration of this quarantine um all right so i guess it goes without saying i have no show announcements <laughs> they're they're all cancelled uh, or postponed. Um, I just stay up to date with those on my social media, I suppose. Uh, yeah, but otherwise, let's get into these questions. All right, this one comes from Sander Cools, and he says, um, a few questions that I can think of right now on the spot. All right, thanks for putting the thought into these. <laughs> what is your take on Orteca? Okay, so Orteca is an IDM artist. They make mostly generative music, I think, using Max MSP and stuff like that. And I think they're pretty interesting. Musically, I find them a little challenging to listen to. 
but I do find that um, acts like that are important for the electronic music scene as a whole. It, it just seems important, I think, to, to be doing experimental stuff like that. Uh, also, one interesting thing is that when they play live, I think that they play with like a from from their max patches basically and they just sort of adjust the patches whilst they're playing and that creates the changes in the music rather than them actually like you know in in real time pressing a keyboard button or something like that and that causing the change <clears throat> so it's kind of interesting and i they run i believe a little warning thing at the start of each show which is kind of cool where they're like uh this is how we're playing. We're using max patches and stuff like that. I think they run like a like a video tutorial thing at the start of their show saying like, this is how we play. And I think that that's kind of important for an act like that, where it literally is just a person on stage looking at a computer or whatever. Uh, but yeah, Orteca, super cool. Um, I, I think if you haven't heard of them before, you should go check out the Grants Graph video on YouTube. Um, I found it really difficult to listen to their stuff until I watched the Grants Graph video and then from then on, for some reason, I found it much easier to, to listen to just because I had like seen the video clip and I don't know, for some reason that made it easier to listen to listen to or like easier to understand that piece of music. Once you see like a physical or not a physical thing, like an animated thing moving to the music and, and you realize like all the bits that you shouldn't intentionally be looking for, um, I think it uh, gets, I don't know, it, it like makes the music make more sense or whatever now that you've seen it ana animated. All right. Do I think IDM music is to dance on or more like a brain exercise? And does this matter? Uh, I would say it's more like a brain exercise. I don't think you would really dance to IDM. It, does, it's not, it doesn't have like simple enough, like one, two, one, two walking type patterns. And I feel like a lot of the reason why humans um, dance to music is because of walking. They, you know, have this one, two, one, two, like sort of thing going on. And that exists in like drum and bass or dubstep or psytrance or whatever it, it kind of always has that that one two pulse thing and the one the one two pulse thing is not super syncopated or anything like that um it's mostly uh like pretty straight like we would walk whereas i think idm is a lot of um uh syncopated patterns and stuff like that and it's just very different to how we move as human beings and therefore i don't really think um it's that conducive to dancing to uh, does it matter? I don't think it matters. I think it's just different types of music for different purposes. Uh, in terms of what instruments I play, which is the next question, um, I played guitar for like 10 years. Uh, I haven't really played guitar a lot in the last like eight to 10 years, but from basically the age of maybe 10 until 20-ish, somewhere around there, I played guitar like every single day. Um, and I got, I would say, quite good at it. Um, and then I studied drums at university for a while and I played drums from the age of like 15 until 20 or something like that. So, um, I would say drums and guitar are my two main instruments. Cause I was in like metal bands and stuff like that. So, um, that's, that's kind of the answer to that question. I feel like, all right, <clears throat> how do I feel about sampling and music rights? Um, I mean, I feel like it should be fine to sample things i think sampling is like you're recycling something for a new purpose right and i think that's kind of interesting and cool i think that um if you can take something that somebody did like a little guitar riff or a little vocal hook or um i don't know just something like a little motif out of a track and you can repurpose it into a completely different thing 
And that completely different thing is palatable now to a whole different group of people that wouldn't have enjoyed it or understood the original version or the original motif. Then I think there's value in that. Um, you've taken like this idea that somebody had and you've applied it in a completely different way, hopefully, um, that, that allows other people to understand it. And I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. All right. Um, Will I ever come and perform in Belgium or do a Euro tour? Uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to it, but I just don't get a lot of offers uh, from Europe pretty much. And usually the way a tour happens is uh, I'll get a few offers come in. This is usually how it works. Or my agent, rather, will get a few offers come in from people saying, hey, we want Bill to play here on this date or Bill to play here on this date. Uh, and then he will hit me up and be like, Hey, we got an offer from, I don't know, New York on I don't know, April 15th or something like that. And then I'll be like, okay, cool. Um, maybe we could do like a little run around that. And then maybe on the 14th we do Baltimore. And then on the uh, 16th we do Philadelphia or something like that. And then he'll go and try and find offers there. And he obviously knows a lot of the promoters and stuff like that. So he, that's kind of what he does. So I don't, A, have a person like that for Europe, which means it's tough for me to, to get these tours happening uh, in that area of the world, at least. Uh, and B, I just never get that starting offer. You know, like I never have somebody hit me up and be like, hey, want to come and perform in Belgium and then even give me the opportunity to route shows around that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would love to do a Europe tour at some point. Not right now, obviously, <laughs> especially um, the state of Italy and Spain and stuff like that seems pretty bad. I mean, America's ter terrible right now as well. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm definitely open to doing a European tour at some point. Uh, the next question was moving to America a huge step for me as a music producer. I'm going to kind of rush through a few of these questions because I'm still on guy number one's email and we have literally 50 emails to get through. <laughs> All right. Was moving to America a huge step for me as a music producer? Uh, the answer is yes. If I didn't move here, I don't think I'd be where I am now. Uh, right now I look up to you as a music producer, but who do I look up to? Uh, or who do you look up to? Meaning me. Um, hmm. Currently I've been looking up to Malix actually. He started writing music as Scope and I think he still writes music as Scope. Uh, and then he started a drum and bass project called Malix and it's just incredibly produced. It's like everything about it, in my opinion, is just like the perfect balance. Um, I think like that's pretty impressive to me right now. Um, I would say production-wise, I, I look up to him. Musically, I would say um, maybe someone like Animals as Leaders or Periphery, like some more like really techy, jazzy sort of stuff. <clears throat> but I guess they're not producers. Um, do I eat avocados every day? No, I don't. Um, I used to for a while, but uh, I haven't in a while. I'm so flimmy. All right. Next email comes about from Fusio Null. He says, can you talk about learning to DJ your own songs from a producer's point of view and also your thoughts on learning slash practicing DJing live sets on vinyls at home and then switching or recreating your hot cues in record box for CDJ use at the club? So DJing my own songs from, a, from my point of view, I mean, I don't know, I just try and play out the build-up and then the drop, and then when the next breakdown happens, I just start the ne either the next breakdown or build-up from the next track, I don't think. 
it's not really rocket science. Um, it really depends like how you design your tracks though. Like some people, when they write their music, they don't write it with this specific like eight to 16 bar chunk pattern thing happening. And I think that's really important for electronic music that you would play at a club, uh, especially in like the dubstep or bass music world, because then, um, I don't know, you want your stuff to be like easily DJable. And and the set pretty much has like a working and tried and tested format, which is pretty much like intro of the set, usually like a pretty big, I don't know, one minute thing or two minute thing that like goes into a big build up. And then the first drop of the set is usually pretty massive. And then after that, it's just like build up, drop, build up, drop, build up, drop for like an hour, basically. And then every now and then you play out a breakdown to give people a break. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I think that's about as as complicated as it needs to be. Um, all right, next question uh, from Lev Kolpakov. When you release collaboration with Copycat, it is really damn cool shit. I can't wait for this. We actually have a collab that we're working on now. Uh, the ball has been in his court actually for a long time, maybe like, I don't know, a few months at this point. Um, so we will release it whenever he finishes it or works on it where he just needs to work on it and send it back and then I can probably finish it. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. We have like a track that's probably 50 to 70% done, I would say. All right. This one comes from Axe Line. Hey, Mr. Bill, you said that Ableton Live's OTT and X for OTT are not the same. Could you please tell us what is the difference between them and which one is better to use? Okay. So I talked to Dead Mouse about this and he claims that they are the same. I just don't think that they sound the same and that's all I that's the difference like if you put them both on a channel uh and you just a b them I, I think you can clearly hear that they're not the same and I've I don't know I've done that a few times I actually lately have been enjoying the Ableton Live one more again like I usually I go between the two like for a while I just like the X for one and then for a while I just like the Ableton one um Dead Mouse Joel has told me that he he swears that he knows for a fact that the maths in like both of them are the exact same, but I don't know. It, to me, it sounds clearly different, and I'm, I I like to just trust my ears on things like that. All right, next question is from Vasico. Um, he says, "Hey, any chance we can see you on JRE? It would be amazing. Yeah, that would be amazing. I would love to go on Joe Rogan's podcast." <clears throat> um not sure that it will happen anytime soon. I feel like I'm probably not interesting enough for Joe Rogan or you know not big enough. I don't see like any reason why he would why he would want to talk to me. Um I feel like you know I'm just doing this weird like niche podcast for producers and stuff like that. And I don't think he has any interest in electronic music production. Then again, he did have Dead Mouse on his podcast once, so I suppose I do have like somewhat of a, a connection there. I'm trying to think of other electronic music people he's had on his podcast. I think he had, well, he had Wiz Khalifa. I guess he's not really a producer. Um, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. All right, let's go to the next question. What is validating a drop? This comes from Gangly Space Creatures. All right. I was in the studio with Ganja White Knight and he said, uh, well, basically, we were writing a song together. And it got to a point where I was just like hammering through the song, like trying to make new parts because that's just how I write. Um, 
you know, where I, I'll just sort of like write the drop and then I'll write the switch and then I'll write the breakdown and then I'll write the next build up and then I'll write the next drop. And basically what I'll end up with is, is a finished song um, that has all of the uh, parts there, but it's not playable. It doesn't sound well mixed. None of the transitions are there. Um, none of maybe like the melodic nuances and stuff are there because usually I do all that stuff last and I find that just writing the whole song and getting the, the song finished is way harder to do than making like little rises and transitions and shit like that because I, I feel like that kind of work is almost um I don't know let's say systematic right it's not it doesn't feel that creative to me so uh when I was working with Ben from Ganja White Night he was saying um he, he doesn't like to work that way. He likes to work very linearly, uh, which basically means you start writing the song uh, and you don't move on to the next part until the first part is done. So, like, if he's making an intro or a riser, he, like, literally won't even start making the drop until the intro is basically perfect, which I find to be fucking super weird. Like, I, I, I definitely do not work that way. Um, but, you know, when we're in the studio, I said to him, when he kept being like, no, 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 go back. Like, let's edit this bit. I kept being like, yeah, but now we're not writing music anymore. Like, we're literally just like working on little fucking pieces of noise and shit. And like, you know, we can do that when we're not in the studio together, basically, because that's just systematic work. And he was like, no, like all of this little stuff that we're doing, we're like validating the work that we've done so far. And I thought that was an interesting way to look at it as like, you know, you do all these little things to it and that just like validates the work that you've done further, um, which is, yeah, interesting. Uh, but I, yeah, I definitely don't look at it that well. I mean, I understand it and I think it's important and it's a good way to think about it, but um, I just don't like writing that way. I like to finish the entire song quickly and then I like to sit on it for like, a, I don't know, three months or something like that and then. I'll come back to it and add all the transitions later and fix all the buildups and all that kind of stuff later. Uh, and, and it's just, I don't know, it's, it's nice for me to just know that there's a finished song sitting there that I just need to finish, you know, and, and knowing that it's not even creative means that it's just work that's sitting there for me to do on a day where I'm not feeling creative, which I find awesome because then, you know, on days where you don't actually feel like writing music, you still have work that you can be doing that can be finishing songs, which I think is like a good workflow for me. Yeah. So that's what that means. All right. Moving on to an email from Brian Hunt. It says, hey, Bill, hope you're doing well amidst this whole thing. Anyways, uh, I don't know why I thought of this, but I know the seasons reside in different parts of the year in Australia. So my question to you is when you first moved to the States, how long did it take me to get used to it? Um, hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like the seasonal changes, I don't, it didn't really take me that long to get used to it. Like, I'm used to having a really hot Christmas. It's usually like summer um, in Australia when, when Christmas exists or when Christmas is happening, I should say. Who the fuck says that <laughs> when Christmas exists? Uh, yeah, so when Christmas is happening, it's it's hot. And then I guess it goes into like spring and then or, uh, or winter, I think, is like in when when the summer is happening in America, it's winter in Australia. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it, it doesn't, I don't know, I don't really look at it, though, as something you need to get used to. The only thing you need to get used to is like the time difference. And that just takes like a week, something like that. 
I never really found the seasonal change to to disrupt my life or anything. All right, moving on. Next one. This comes from a, a guy called Winks, spelt W-Y-N-X. Question one, how does my streaming setup work? What software and hardware do I use? Um, <clears throat> all right, so I use OBS. Uh, okay, he's saying here, I've been wanting to stream, but I can't get OBS to capture my Ableton audio. I've tried a bunch of internal routing softwares, but it fucks with it. Okay, cool. Um, so I use OBS as well. Uh, the way that I get my audio to loop back is by, <laughs> you're not going to like this answer. I literally have a whole other computer with a sound card plugged into it and a capture card. And then I run my entire Ableton computer, like my main writing computer into that computer. Like, so I'll have my, my, my main desktop that I write on. And then just I have all of the outputs going from that desktop to the other computer that is streaming. So it's like a streaming computer, I guess. And that's literally all it does is takes inputs into OBS and then streams. And that's the whole purpose of that computer in my studio. Um, <clears throat> if you don't want to do that, I'd suggest maybe looking into getting a Yamaha AGO3. That's a sound card that has a loopback function on it. And um, that works pretty nice nicely. Uh, all right, question number two. What is the most fucked up sound I've ever put in a song? Uh, it's hard to say. Maybe maybe the screaming goat from that YouTube video. And then that's in the that's in the intro track for like all my tutorials. It's like the last sound you hear. All right, Justin Schott. Uh, what would a Mr. Bill set look like if you weren't restricted by current technology? Could be anywhere in the world with any type of venue, sound system, visuals, or stage you wanted. Nothing is off limits. The most optimal experience that you could possibly imagine. What do you think that would look like? Okay, um, what I would do is I would pretty much build my studio exactly how it is, but I would just build it at a massive scale. Um, <clears throat> so if you could imagine, if you've seen pictures of my studio, like a perfect mix position, but that mix position is just like big enough to hold like a thousand people. Um, because I think that's the goal, right? You want the the sound to basically sound like your studio. I mean, we get our studios. I mean, at least I go to the effort of bringing my acoustician, Matt Davis, who was on my podcast recently, to fly all the way out to my studio from Florida and align the room. And, and you know, I pay him good money to do that. And I pay a lot of money for tr like acoustic treatment and stuff like that. And this is just not something that people think about too much in the in the live music realm when they take their music to the clubs and stuff like that. There's sure there's good sound systems, but there's no acoustic treatment. So my uh, ideal setup, I think, would be like an acoustic. Uh, it would be acoustically different from what we're what we're used to hearing now. Um, so I guess you could just uh, assume it's similar to a to a normal club or venue, but just sounds way better. Uh, as for the video, I think if nothing was off limits, um, like there was no money limits or no technology limits, I'd probably have the entire room just be completely augmented reality, um, meaning that there's just like hologram, holograms everywhere and I don't know, like perhaps each song change, like when I DJ a new song changes the whole room into like a different area or space completely with, with aug augmented reality technology. Um, but yeah, perfect sound and augmented reality sounds pretty fucking good. <laughs> All right. Uh, <clears throat> next email. 
from Chris Keir. Uh, where do I find my unique style stems from? Teachers will always show you their way, but building yourself usually takes many teachers and small aspects from each. Who or what taught you to find your own way the most? Honestly, I think it was just a product of uh, using Ableton a lot. Back in the day, I just used Ableton for, I don't know, 10 hours a day while smoking weed when I was like 18 years old in Australia. And well, 18 until the age of like 25 when I moved to America, I was just using Ableton every single day, doing nothing but smoking tons of weed. And I don't smoke weed anymore, but um, I found that during that time, smoking weed just gave me like crazy focus for some reason. And I would just spend so many hours just grinding on Ableton. And I feel like that a byproduct of just fucking around on Ableton so much and not really, I was not ever like planning to make electronic music my career. I was always just like, I just found it fun. And I think just by proxy of doing it a ton, uh, I just stumbled across enough of my own tricks and stuff like that, that I kind of developed my own sound and style. And I never from day one, like a lot of producers might do, um, tried to like copy a style. I mean, I did to some degree at some points. I was like, oh, I want to write Psytrance. So I'd try to write Psytrance and then, you know, I'd try to write drum and bass sometimes and stuff like that. But really the majority of my time was just spent making whatever felt good. Um, and I think that's how I came across my own thing is not by listening to too much of what anybody else was doing and just doing my own thing for a long time. All right. Got an email from me. That's just a uh, smiley face. Uh, thank you for that. Oh, wait, sorry. In the subject heading, there's a question. It says, what does your family say about your music? Ah, okay, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> um, so my dad, I don't think, has ever even listened to a single one of my tracks. Uh, my mum has come to one of my shows once, um, and she thinks it's okay. I don't think she thinks it's like the most amazing shit or whatever. Um yeah, I don't think my parents really understand electronic music at all, to be honest. I think they probably just think it sounds weird and whatnot. I mean, my dad for sure doesn't have any idea what I do. Um, I mean, I, I, he knows that I play shows and he knows like that I write music for a living, but he has no idea like what kind of music or like any, he, he has no idea like about the subculture at all or anything like that. Um, my mom has a little bit more of an idea, but she also doesn't really um, pay that much attention, I think, to what I'm doing. Just because, I don't know, it's not interesting to them. You know, I don't really pay attention to their jobs either. And my brother, he knows what I do. He understands the subculture. Um, he's more into, like, techie stuff like drum and bass and um, I guess is what I would classify his, his taste as. More like definitely more on the cheesy motif side of things with... Um, yeah, but he's definitely into drum and bass because he's a really, uh, really talented drummer, actually. Um, and he, he likes my music. He came to my show recently in Sydney, which was nice of him to do. And um, and he, he was, like, pretty impressed and said he liked it. So my brother gets it. My parents do not. All right, next question, podcast question. If you had to pick a bunch, uh, pick a handful of modules to take on a desert island to make sick mud pies with, mud pies being long recorded... Uh, pieces of audio that um they're just like long sound design ideas that you can then cut up into music uh what would they be and you're also saying love your stuff love your videos have been super helpful please come through oklahoma asap all right thanks um 
Honestly, I mean, if, if I had to take something to a desert island to make mud pies with, it would, probably wouldn't be, uh, it probably wouldn't be modules. It would probably be um, plugins. But if I had to take modules, I don't know, I would take like like a handful. Okay, so that's what, two? How much? How many modules can you carry in one hand? Maybe two. Um, if, if that were the case, if it was just two, I mean, I'd pick one, like maybe maths, and then the other one would have to be an output module, I guess. So maybe like Rosie or something. Um, and I guess you would need something to ping maths with. See, this is how you get <laughs> into the... Uh, into the world of modular and you end up spending 10 grand on a setup um, but the thing I would use to ping maths would be maybe like Pamela's workout or um, uh, Tempe maybe or uh, I would just get a make noise black and gold skiff to be honest <laughs> if that was an option all right let's move on uh, hey Mr. Bill big fan of everything you do I like long podcasts so here are my few questions and there is six questions okay cool <clears throat> one what are your favorite podcasts right now and tell us a few words about each all right duncan trussell's one's pretty cool um oh it's really cool i just like duncan a lot um going on his podcast was f fucking awesome it was really really fun for me to do uh so yeah i really liked uh like that that one um joe rogan's good i mean joe rogan is sort of like a gateway podcast right he's definitely the one that uh that got me into listening to podcasts Reply All, which I see is in, in one of your other questions here, is so sick. It's like definitely one of my favorite podcasts. I actually think Reply All might be my favorite podcast. Like every time a new episode comes out, I'm super stoked to listen to it. Um, it's just really good journalism and the narratives are told really well. And I would suggest everyone listen to at least a few of the episodes. 99% um, Invisible with Roman Mars is really cool. Again, it's just good journalism, good storytelling really nice to listen to if you don't want to watch something but you kind of want to like feel like you've watched a movie or something or watched a documentary of, of sorts um maybe radio lab is is good all right if i had the power to delete one edm trend what would it be it'd be a crazy power to have i mean i would be interested to live in the present with all the electronic music that currently exists online and just delete one by one just delete a bunch and just see how it changed the rest of music It'd be really interesting to just delete dubstep and then just go on SoundCloud right now and just see what people were doing in, instead of what they're doing. Or, you know, just delete like future bass and have a look where music is now. I think I think you'd find some really interesting end results. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't want to delete any. I really like where electronic music is right now. Uh, all right. Am I an Alex or a PJ? I know you love Reply All. I do as well. So wondering what makes Reply All special. Well, like I said, it's just really good journalism. Um, am I an Alex or a PJ though? Probably more of an Alex, I guess. I don't know. Um, it's also about Reply All. Uh, who do you think mysterious producer Breakmaster Cylinder is? Is it Alex Goldman himself? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's really hard to say. I think that's the point, right? You're not supposed to know uh all right since cricket is big in australia was i ever a cricket fan no i was not a cricket fan um <clears throat> i was never really a sports fan in general to be honest the actually the only sports i've ever gotten into one uh, mostly esports one is counter-strike um i enjoyed watching that on twitch for a, a while and the other one is uh chess i actually really love watching chess games um, actually, I don't like watching the chess game. I like watching the post-game analysis by this YouTuber called Agad Mator. 
who uh, does really sick chess analysis. Uh, all right, question six. I know you've been to India a few times, so tell us some things that surprised you. Oh, man, India is so sick. <clears throat> Definitely just the absolute sheer dense volume of human beings there surprised me. I was like, this is insane. It's just so many people so close to each other. Uh, the food is also surprisingly good. And also the the main thing that surprised me about people's attitudes there was just how responsible everybody is for their own actions because I feel like when you get a one point however many billion people in a country together and everyone is like, okay, we can't uh, – there's just too many people getting hurt and stuff like that and the hospitals seem like they're basically at capacity all the time or if they're not at capacity, it's just like there's too many people for anyone to give a shit about you it seems like because there's just fucking too many people for the system. So everyone, like, if you know, if there's no railing or something on a staircase at a, a train station, seems like everyone in India is, like, taking responsibility for not falling off that staircase. Whereas I feel like in America, people are a little bit more, like, careless with that sort of stuff. And that might be a bad example. But, you know, people in America or any most Western countries I've been to are a little bit more nonchalant about that stuff because they know the worst case is that they just get hurt and get taken care of. Or you know, anything else that requires a system that's not flooded to be in place to uh, to take care of you. I think that was one of the things that surprised me the most is just how, like, the, the level of self-responsibility people have, and I think it stemmed from that reason. All right, uh, Victor Malley. Sup, my dude, I have four questions. Pick the one that you want to answer. I'm going to answer the um, the mix question you seem to be able to pick out problems in other people's mixes, but you have a hard time picking out problems with your own mixes. And how can you objectively fix a song that you've listened to a thousand times? The answer is referencing. So what you do is you pick a track that you know sounds good. So uh, one of mine, for instance. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, just pick a track that you know sounds good and put it in Ableton next to your track. Um and then just A, B them. So just solo the, make sure you set the channel that you're listening to the other track in to go out the external outs so it misses all of the mastering plugins you have or whatever. And then just A, B between them and your brain should be able to pick up on differences. Like just listen for each thing. Just be like how loud and how punchy is the kick in this reference and then how loud and how punchy is your kick. And if you A, B between them, you should instantly be able to tell the difference and what is missing. Like you can, you can pretty easily just break it down into like three parts, right? Like bass, mids, and highs. And you can just quickly click over to the other track and then back to yours and be like, oh, mine doesn't have enough highs or something like that. Um, <clears throat> I think that's a pretty easy and objective way to, to do that. All right, next question from Connor Farrell. Hey, Mr. Bill, hope you're well during this time. My question for you is what did you learn late in your production journey that you wish you learned early on? Um... Maybe that spending more time on music is not a bad idea. I think when I was early on in my production career, I was just releasing too much music and a lot of it was not good. And now I like uh, basically have pulled all of those albums off the internet because I just hate them so much. They're just so badly produced in my opinion. Um, so I would say just spending more time on music is a good idea, uh, which is something I wish I had have done more of. Uh, just because, I don't know, yeah, it's um, like when you go back to Tipper's old work, it just doesn't sound bad. It just sounds um, 
just, you know, it sounds like older and maybe a little dated, but not even. I mean, it still stands up with today's production, I think. And it, it's clear that he just put a lot of time in to those albums when he made them. Whereas my first albums, they just, I don't know, they just sound rushed and shitty to me. So something I learned late, which was only possible to learn late, was that if you want to make stuff that age as well, you have to spend a lot of time on it in the moment, I think. And you have to think about it from a lot of different angles. You have to, something I think about now a lot is how is this mix down going to age? And then I start to also think like, am I being too hyper specific with this mix down to match the trends of the time? So for instance, with rhythm, right, it's super metallic sounding. Um, and I don't think it's going to age super well, really. Like a lot of these mixes that are just way too aggressive that are trying to like match this current, say, rhythm trend. I think if you if you listen to them 10 years down the line, you're going to be like, wow, what the fuck? Why were people doing that? <laughs> that seems like such a weird like uh, place for music to be. But, you know, currently right now it seems seems correct. It seems like the right thing to do to make stuff super bright and super harsh and metallic sounding. But who knows how that's going to age, right? Um, for instance, the Skrillex Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites EP, it sounded super good for its time. Um, but I feel like mixed down wise and stuff like that, it hasn't specifically aged that well. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, uh, next one's from Liam Casey. Hello, Mr. Bill. What is your favorite way to get music in your head into some form of storage? Huh. So I actually more often than not don't have a musical idea first that I try to get out of my head. Instead, I sort of work the other way about it uh, with it where um, I try to stimulate myself in different ways using plugins and, and so on and so forth to try and generate a musical idea in my head. So um, you can create stimulus in whichever way. Mud Pies is a good way to do this. Sound Design is a great way to do this um, where you just stimulate a bunch of ideas and then all of a sudden you hear a motif in the sound design and, and you're like, oh, cool, that that can that gives me a musical idea now. And then you have somewhere to work from and, and whatnot. So I think, um, yeah, in that sense, uh, I never really try to get music into my head, but I suppose this stimulus generation technique is kind of the way that I do it. All right, E-Putty, when do you think an artist should start releasing music? Uh, like when did you feel comfortable with your releases and what did you learn from sitting with Tipper? Haven't heard much about that production-wise. Okay, uh, what did I learn? Uh, wait, when do I think an artist should start releasing music? Let's answer that one first. I think you should start releasing music when you're comfortable with it and when you think it's good. Um, but I think that you should also try to be objective with that uh, thought because... It's easy to think that stuff's good when you haven't built up the mechanics to understand why it's not first, uh, and that can take some time. Um, also, it, it takes a while, I think, to build up the mechanics mentally to to be able to accept that you just you can't like hear the differences that you need to be hearing and stuff like that to uh, to justify. I don't know. That's another hard one to answer, really. I mean, I, I don't know. There's no rules, right? Just put it out when you want to put it out. I think music mostly is about having fun. And once you start putting too many rules and boundaries on it, it can become a bit of a bit of, I don't know, just a boring thing to do. And I think that's uh, it's a bad place for music to get. You never want it to be boring because then you start like not wanting to write music and stuff. Uh, and what did I learn sitting with Tipper? Um, that's a good one. Uh, I learned... A, um, Maybe just more about his process, like how he works. 
one thing that he said to me was like, you know, everyone has the same tools and everyone kind of has the same sounds now. Like everyone can make his sounds, it seems like. And he, he told me this. So he was like, really, all you have left now that everyone has the same sounds and the same tools is the arrangement, right? Like the only thing that you can do differently to other people now, it seems like from his perspective is arrangement, which I kind of agree with to some some degree. And he's got really good arrangements. He's really clever at the way he puts all of his sounds together to create these really interesting sound design motifs. Um, so I think that was one of the main things that I learned. Also, he builds a lot of melodies in the Serum LFOs, which I thought was interesting, like using the Serum LFO as like a step sequencer kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I thought that was cool. All right, Caleb Rogers says, Mr. Bill, thanks for offering to take questions. That's really cool of you. Do you have tips or guidance for amateur producers that want to get into mangling sound but don't have space or budget for lots of external modules, pedals, and the like? Two, how do you go about framing a song? Um, all right, let's, let's answer the first one. Amateur producers that want to get into mangling sound but don't have space or budget for external modules. Oh, man, just get free plugins, honestly. There's so many free plugins out there that are just insane. I already mentioned the sound hack ones in this in this podcast. All right, uh, next one is from Tyler Puckett. Uh, huge fan. Thank you. Uh, I love your podcast so much, and I really wish one day you can talk about production tips in one of your podcasts. Well, this one has a lot of production tips at this point, it seems like. I would love to know how to modulate a sub in a unique way, possibly similar to Charles the First. From my understanding, I think he uses operator. How can I put movement on the subwoofer similar to Charles the First or maybe even like detox unit? Um, so the only two real things that I can say makes sub more interesting is pitch movement or volume automation. Because um, you can't really filter a sub, right? Because there's no high frequencies or filter out. I guess you could filter out the lows, but then that doesn't really have like any effect. It just sounds like you're turning it off and on again. Um, so really pitch. So you get the sub to go like, or volume where you get the sub to just go. Like that's the two things that you can do, it seems like. And then you can just like layer shit on top of it. I think, again, it's like um, I just answered the previous question about what Tip was talking about. Like everyone has the same sounds available, but some people just use those sounds in more creative ways. And Charles I and Detox Unit are good examples of, of creative things that you can just do with those two simple tools like pitch and volume on the sub to, to make it sound pretty nicely and interestingly articulated. All right, next question is from Andrew Gonzalez. Hey, Bill, I fucks with Ableton a bit, but my main jam is just noodling around with keys and synths. <clears throat> what is your favorite hardware synthesizer? And what hardware would be a dream for you to own? Do you think Teenage Engineering OP1 is worth the price? That's my dream machine at the moment, but I think it's ridiculously overpriced. Thanks in advance for answering any of my questions. Okay, my favorite hardware synthesizer actually is probably the OB6 um, from Dave Smith Instruments. It's the only one I've played with at length, and I have one sitting next to me right now because my housemate is actually uh, one of the developers at Dave Smith Instruments, which is actually now known, I guess, as Sequential. Um, so that's cool. Uh, having access to that is really sick, and I really like that synth. I would say the Pro 3 that they just came out with is also really sick. Uh, what hardware would, would be a dream for me to own? I mean, honestly, I've become not that much of a hardware guy. I, I got into modular synthesis for a while, and at this point, I just don't really care for it that much anymore. 
I'm definitely more of an in-the-box plugin type person. All right, Maxwell Doman asks, do you have any music theory anchors? In other words, do you rely on any music theory fundamentals to stabilize your tunes while experimenting? Like arrangement techniques, certain scales or tuning systems, etc. cetera. Uh, loving your podcast. Also, if you could have any rapper in the world rap over one of your beats, who would you choose? Okay, so the first question, music theory anchors. I always say I don't know any music theory, but that's not completely true. Uh, I understand uh time signatures pretty well because i was a drummer for a while but in terms of melodic music theory i understand it conceptually but i don't understand it in practice and i don't understand how to read or write it so i i understand what scales are and scale degrees and like how chords are put together and you know um but that's sort of where my where my shit taps out i mean i understand a little bit about modes and uh recycling scales in different ways over different keys and stuff but i don't know how to put that stuff into practice and i understand like the the concept a little bit behind like you know sevenths and you know uh thirteenths and ninths and stuff like that and maybe using like subdominant chords and whatnot in like jazz a, a little bit like a tiny tiny bit i've watched some youtube videos on that but apart from that, like, yeah, my music theory is pretty limited and I don't really rely on it or use it at all to write music. I think you should just write music that sounds good to you and sounds correct to you. And if it doesn't sound correct, just keep fucking with it until it does sound correct and just make something that you like. And then I'm sure there'll be some person who knows music theory out there who can justify what you did afterwards if you really, if it's really important to you. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I think I want to learn more music theory eventually, though. I think maybe I'll go get some classes on that at some point. Uh, second question, if I could have a, any rapper in the world rap over one of my beats, who would I choose? Um, it's a good question. Maybe Chance or Kendrick are both really sick. I think they would both be really fun to do tracks with, honestly. Kendrick especially. Uh, Chant, well, yeah, no, both of those guys I think would be fucking sweet. All right. Connor Lawson says, do you see yourself and Rhinosaurus ever making more electro tracks as Electricado? Yes. Currently, we're making mostly techno. Uh, but yeah, I think we'll make more electro in the future. I, I just think the Electricado project, it's like a thing that both of us still want to do. We still both see value in it, but it's just not a priority for either of us because Ryan is so big in the Psytrance scene and you know I'm busy doing my own things like this podcast and running a music label and a sample label now and um uh obviously my website and tutorials and like doing shows and all this stuff like the mr bill project has really got a lot going on around it at this point so i don't have a shitload of time to put into electricado at this point either although um i do want to work on it more i probably do like one electricado session every month or two and during which time i'll get like half a track finished or something so we, we have like a new EP almost ready to go, but it's mostly just techno, not, not really electro. All right, next, next question comes from Cyber Serum. That's a good name. Um, hey, Bill, love the podcast. Two questions. One, how big is your wiener? Uh, I have an average-sized wiener. I would say it's about six inches, normal size, uh, according to the internet. I've been insecure about this in the past, so I've definitely Googled, like, do I have a small weenie? And uh, the answer is no, it's a uh, normal weenie. All right, second question. What's your most fucked up festival experience? How have you interpreted that? Oh my God. Shit, I'm trying to think. I mean, I've had a few experiences where I got like maybe a little too high 
on a certain substance and didn't really have a good time. I would say the most fucked up one is, uh, I don't even want to talk about it actually. All right, moving on. No thing music. What are the future plans for Beleagle Beats and when can we expect Beleagle Beats merch? Also, will we ever see another Beleagle Beats volume? Uh, and this question isn't for the podcast, but how can I get a nut bleeding dynamics t-shirt? I couldn't find it on your website. All right, I'm going to answer it here anyway. Uh, the Beleagle Beats plans. Um, we're just going to keep putting out music. We're not trying to like push the label extremely hard. We're not trying to do anything out of the like we're not trying to be super crazy or special with it we just want to put out good music that we like with good artwork consistent somewhat semi-consistently like hopefully a, a release every month is ideal but if we can't do that then you know six six to ten releases a year i think is pretty good and we just want them to be like nice four track eps that that we really like um beleagle beats merch i would say yes i would love to do beleagle beats merch at some point the problem with merch this is kind of a pain in the ass. You have to like send it and stuff like that. You have to go to the post office all the time. Um, I mean, maybe we could get stamps or something like that and figure out something that way. But yeah, I don't know. I just find it to be a little bit of a pain in the ass to deal with. So that is why you can't get a Not Bleeding Dynamics t-shirt on my website. Currently, my manager, Anand, has all of my shirts at his house in Charlottesville, um, which I believe is in Virginia. And I think we're going to get that online soon so maybe you can get some some shirts online soon we'll see um will we ever see another beleagle beats volume yeah probably but honestly it's just so difficult to to curate like a 20 track release it just takes a lot of time a lot of emailing people and yeah i just don't have the time right now all right question from my boy gary oak have i ever considered auto cannibalism um i think is that just where you eat yourself Let's Google this real quick. Uh, auto cannibalism. Yes, that is self cannibalism is the practice of eating oneself. Also called auto cannibalism or auto sacrophagy. I don't know how to say that word. A similar term. Uh, yeah. Um, so I've, I don't know. I always thought that question online was pretty funny on Yahoo questions or whatever, where it was like, if I eat myself, will I get twice as big or disappear completely? Yeah, it's the age old question, really. So yeah, I've considered it in that regard, but I've never considered eating myself. All right. Alexander Moran. Hey, would you be able to give a walkthrough on your song Big Tip on SoundCloud design and composition? You mean just like sound design? I think that might have been an autocorrect. I feel like you're the only one who gives any type of tutorial content on that Ripper style glitch up and sound design. Um, Yeah, I could probably do a tutorial on that, I think. Maybe like a track breakdown uh, on my YouTube channel. Um, all right. Riley Bonin says, Hey, Mr. Bill, first question. Could you give me some advice on sharing music effectively? And second, do you necessarily have to like the track to know that it's worth sharing? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't share a track around if you don't feel like it's a good track, unless you're like sending it to a friend to ask for advice on like what, a, you know, what could be done to make it a better track or like, you know, if there's any issues mixed down wise or whatever with it, I suppose, um, I would, I would probably send it to people for that kind of critique if I didn't like it. Um, <clears throat> but the first question, do I have advice on sharing music effectively? Yes. One, I wouldn't spam people too much because that pisses people off. Uh, two, I would just upload to SoundCloud and YouTube and then also DistroKid and that'll get your music on like Spotify and all that kind of stuff and Apple Music and stuff. And that's kind of like 
you really want to get your stuff on those platforms because that's where um uh I don't know if it's not on those platforms you're missing out on on listeners basically because some people only use Spotify right or some people only use Apple Music or some people only use SoundCloud too so I think it's important to have have it uploaded to all platforms so people can choose what they want to listen to it on all right Jimmy Palladia says do you have any sort of production workshops planned during the pandemic um no but I will be streaming on Twitch a lot so if you go to twitch.tv forward slash Mr Bill's tunes uh you can see me stream there what's my plan to make up for all the show cancellations as far as your online activity goes well that's pretty much it like just uh lots of streaming and lots of writing music can we anticipate any released DJ mixes? Yeah, actually, I think I'm going to do a Beleagle Beats one. And that's going to be like a, a I think, um, what do you call it when something's been around for a while? An anniversary. Um, yeah, I think we're going to do like a one-year anniversary Beleagle Beats mix pretty soon. Uh, what is quarantine like for you living in one of the worst affected areas? It's pretty fucked. Everyone here is inside. Um, it's boring as shit. I'm just sitting inside all day uh talking to myself on a podcast it looks like <clears throat> and i'm um, just writing a lot of music and eating a lot of canned food um yeah kind of sucks but yeah what are you gonna do all right while i was in the studio from ben with ganja white night recently was this for a single release or was this for wobble rocks exclusivity uh this is just a tune that we we're writing it'll probably get released eventually if and when we finish it um yeah, I was hoping Wobble Rocks would happen so we could play it there, but maybe we can get it released before Wobble Rocks and then it might be kind of cool because, you know, there'll be a release with us out before playing that. I don't know. Um, where do I see dubstep generally headed? Uh, I don't know. It seems to just, if you look in the past, it's just gotten louder and more aggressive, so probably in that direction. It's just going to get louder and more aggressive still, I think. Um, we're seeing the comeback, comeback of traditional dubstep. Uh, and then there's this whole rhythm bro step scene in the left field where Khan styled seems just as popular. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe glitchier stuff. So here's the thing. I think people get into the music scene, right? Like um, people might get into something that's more popular like bass nectar or something. And then they'll find something that's a little more niche like Tipper. And then they'll find something a little more niche like Jade Cicada. And then they'll find something even more niche like me um and so on and so forth and i think the longer that people stay in the scene the more their their tastes get refined and the more that they find out about this like you know strange obscure shit and i think um eventually like in the next five to ten years there'll be enough of those people that have like sifted their way to the bottom of the barrel to find people like me who are doing weird stuff uh and then this style i think will then become maybe you know a little bit more mainstream for lack of a better word and and you'll see maybe some more techie stuff in the dubstep scene maybe hopefully i don't know we'll see uh is there a dmb ep in the works maybe i mean i've been writing a bit of drum and bass lately so yeah possibly all right this comes from jake dumont hey mr bill what is your view on smaller artists sending out tunes to bigger artists like labels and management are we doing it wrong by just sending a link in a dm what's the right way to do it so I actually prefer to get demos in the form of a private SoundCloud link just because it's a nice, easy player or a private um, Dropbox link, either one. Um, you definitely don't want to send a downloadable file. That's super annoying. 
you just want to send a quick link and then the person can just click it, quickly stream it, click through to the drop probably is what they're going to do. Um, and then just uh, they'll either say yes or no, I guess. That that seems to be the, the I don't know, usually, um, usually the labels will have a demo process and they'll want their stuff submitted that way. And they'll generally have that uh, stated on their website pretty clearly, like this is how we like to get demos. So I would just like pay attention to that, and then, yeah, I think um, I think that's a probably the the best thing you can do is just adhere to what they're asking you to do. All right, CZC. Hey, Mister Bill, hope you're doing well. This is a cool idea for a quarantine podcast. Thank you. Um, it was actually my my podcast editor's idea to do this. Uh, so far, I feel like it's been pretty boring. I feel like I'm pretty low energy right now. So maybe people listening will be like, oh, this guy sounds fucking sadder than I do. I don't want to be involved with this. All right. Um, here's a few questions you had for a while. You heard me talk on the podcast about how I got into electronic music. Seems like it was mostly through Psytrance. Um, that is correct. You got into it around the same time, but through the LA beat scene, like Flying Lotus and stuff. Okay, that's cool. Uh, just wondering if you're familiar with that stuff. I am familiar with it and I like it a lot. Um, a lot of the good stuff in that scene is very IDM inspired. Yeah, I know all of these artists that you're talking about: Flying Lotus, Teebs, Shlomo, No Such Thing, Daedalus, Prefu73. I definitely love all of them. Curious why you've never heard me mention that side of the genre or collab with any of those people. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Flying Lotus would be awesome to collaborate with. I just think he's too big, and I don't know if that would ever happen. Uh, Igloo Ghost is your next question, and would I collaborate with him? Um, I would love to collaborate with Igloo Ghost. His shit is so sick. What is the craziest underground party or show I've been to? Oh, man, probably a doof in Australia for sure. Those those parties are so insane. They're just so loose. Like, everyone gets just way too high at them. Uh, what is – or maybe – yeah, I don't know. Those parties are crazy. If you want to go and get real weird and listen to Psytrance for like three days, that's the place to do it uh, in Australia, surprisingly. Uh, what's my favorite movie? Hmm. I did not get that question yet. That's a good good one. I have a signed poster of The Room by Tommy Wiseau on the, uh, on the wall. Um, I've not actually watched it, but that's just the first thing that comes to mind because the the poster is on my wall. My favorite movie, it might be something by like Tarantino or something. I don't know. Good storytelling is always good, right? Uh, who is Ankle Pants? I cannot tell you. Um, and that's all you can think of. All right. Thanks for the questions. Next one, Henrik Nilton. Hey, Mr. Bill, I believe that the internet era brought many pros, but one of the most annoying cons is the huge amount of useless clickbait information. Despite that, I believe you're a great teacher and after the years stuck in the very basics of Ableton, I could learn new useful things through your tutorials. That said, I'd like to ask from you any other good teachers that you believe contribute to any field, music production, songwriting, design, you name it. Um, <clears throat> thanks, I appreciate that. Uh, I agree, there's a lot of clickbait bullshit out there and that is because people know that they can make money without having real content using nothing but good marketing. Um, and the fact that that works is why there is so much of that bullshit on the internet because people click it and buy literally nothing and internet marketers are able to market nothing. It's fucking stupid. But yeah, um, I think Slink is a really good teacher. Andrew Huang has some good tutorials, I guess, or good videos. He's a good creator. Um, Tom Cosm has great Ableton tutorials. 
Uh, Seamless is great. Culprit has some good streams and masterclasses that he's done online. Uh, there's a bunch. I mean, I'm sure you probably know about all these people already. All right. Luke Steven Traeger says, hey, been loving the podcast. Uh, here's some questions. Top three to five pieces of advice for producers just starting out. Huh. Um, I'd, I'd just say spend a lot of time writing music. I don't think there's anything else that you can do other than than that. Um, what philosophies do you have about producing? Which ones have changed over time and which ones have stayed strong? All right. One philosophy that I've always had is that you should always um, just – be true to your creative self and just finish the music that you want to finish and don't adhere to any genre because you think you need to to be popular in a scene or something like that. And I've I've often thought in the past that um, that maybe this was a shitty way to think because if you don't pay a lot of attention and focus your efforts down into like, you know, single styles like dubstep or whatever, then it's really hard for people to follow and all that stuff. But the one thing I've noticed is a lot of my friends who are just making dubstep and stuff like that, um, they get burnt out pretty quick and they don't want to write music uh, eventually, it seems like. Or they're very slow at writing music sometimes. And I think that that's just because they haven't treated their creative self very well. I look at the creative self kind of like you would the physical self. Um, So if your physical self, if you do nothing but eat shitty food and wake up, uh, go to bed late and uh, drink lots of alcohol and so on and so forth, then waking up in the music, uh, in the morning hurts, right? Like getting out of bed is painful and not fun. Uh, whereas if you do the opposite, you eat really good food, you exercise, you don't you know, do any drinking or anything like that. Getting out of bed is easy. Um, I find the same with music writing. It's like if you just feed your creative self nothing but formulaic bullshit and you adhere to only that forever, then getting to the point of wanting to write music can be painful. Um, So I found that that philosophy of mine has always stayed pretty strong, which is good. Uh, And it's just been proven to me over and over again by seeing people around me get uninspired and uncreative time and time again just by treating their creative self badly. Um, All right. How do I approach online? Oh, how do I approach collabs and what do I like about them? Okay. I love collabs because they always result in something that I would never have made and hopefully something that the other person would never have made either. And I just really like the idea that you're creating new shit that neither of you would have made. Uh, And the way I approach it is usually I'll start an idea, send it to someone or they'll send me an idea And one or the other of us will go like, oh, that's sick. Mind if I work on it? And then the other person will be like, yeah, sure. I'll zip it up and send it over. And then they do that. And then we start working on it. That's usually how it works. Um, Where do I see the bass and EDM scene pushing toward in the next couple of years? Um, I guess I kind of just answered that question, actually. So let's move on. All right. James Haustian. Mr. Bill, you're the effing man, dude. Thanks. New halftime EP is righteous. And thanks. Your question would be, who would be my dream guest for the podcast? Oh, man. Maybe Sam Harris, actually. I really like Sam Harris as a thinker. He's fucking crazy. Um, Really smart. I I would say maybe him. Uh, Or maybe... Yeah, I'm going to stick with that answer. I really like Sam Harris. All right, next one. Lucas Lurks or Lirkies. 
Often when you're arranging sounds you made in mud pie sessions, I realize it's lacking severely in the mid-ranges. I've heard the advice to layer to fill in the lacking frequencies in the spectrum, but it ends up sounding really shitty and I'm not sure how to go about the layers. What do you recommend? Okay, what I would recommend is you don't have to fill up the entire frequency spectrum. I think that's like a weird misconception that the entire spectrum needs to be full. <clears throat> I think having like a sub and then a kick and a snare and just one weird sound sitting over everything is totally fine to do. And I definitely don't think you need to have like all the layers happening at, at any given time. I think it's fine to have super minimal stuff uh, whilst using mud pies. Um, as for your next part of the question, which is uh, do you synthesize extra layers and stuff like that? Yeah, I'll just synthesize a sub and then lay, lay mud pie stuff over the top. Um, the other question is cutting frequency ranges. Um, I would just cut the low frequencies out of the mud pie stuff to give room for the sub. And that's that's about it. All right, let's move on. Uh, what are we at here time-wise? We are at 75 minutes. All right, let's do these last 10 or so questions. Hey, Mr. Bill. I use song stems when I play live. My template is very similar to the glitch factory you made with Will Marshall a while back. I was wondering if you had any tips for what you should use on the master bus of your set. I use compressors and limiters, but even tips for the parameters would be helpful. Oh man, <clears throat> that is a tough question. Um, to get stems to sound correct, the only way I've figured how to, how to get stems to sound even close to correct is surprisingly to render all of them through the master settings um, on, on the way out. Super weird that that works, but it somehow does. So for instance, <clears throat> I would like, so I master my tracks in the same session that I write them, which is also like something not a lot of people do. So if that's not what you do, then you already can't do this. Uh, so what I do is I render all the drums out with the master settings on so with the limiter turned on with the eqs turned on on the master etc um and then i will render the bass out through those same settings render the synths out through those same settings and so on and so forth and you would think when you import them all back into ableton as stems that it would be clipping a lot right because you've run all of the stuff through those that master chain so everything is getting compressed like twice now right um and the answer is yes, it is clipping. But if you just turn it down a little bit so it's not, or I mean, it doesn't really matter if it's clipping because of 32-bit. But uh, if you, for some reason, just re-import it, it sounds like a master. It doesn't sound like stems because that's one issue when you render stems outright is it always sounds like there's too much space between them and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know if somehow this works. I don't know how. Um, KJ Sorka originally put me onto doing that. And yes. Yeah, interesting that it works so that's how i do that all right lou lumbra says a lot of electronic artists uh seem to cater to playlists existing fan bases remix culture etc i don't fault them because they just want to be heard and avoid suffering but the depressing part is it leads to a lot of music sounding similar and an audience expectation of disposable music so the question is from an artist's perspective, do you ever think about possible future music platforms, maybe ones that would encourage less genre-driven music and at the same time get listeners to be more engaged long-term? <clears throat> uh, that's a good question. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of people just want to write music to 
um, to make it their job, right? Which is fine. I mean, I think if you can figure out a way to make it your job by just making music for playlists and whatnot, that's totally fine. And if you can have fun doing it, that's even better. Um, I think uh, Amon Tobin recently tried to tried to fix this problem with like a platform he he made where you can subscribe or whatever. It's kind of like Patreon or or Bandcamp subscriptions. I think that's the way to do it, honestly, is subscription platforms like Patreon and stuff like that, where somebody like pays you a wage every week and then uh, or every month, and then you just keep putting out music and, and therefore you can do whatever you want and you hopefully don't need to placate to, um, to playlists and stuff like that. <clears throat> All right, next question from Swamp Music. Hey, Bill, this is Michael B. from Swamp Music. Is Swamp Music a company that sells cables? I feel like I bought some cables from a company called Swamp Music once. Uh, it was cool to run into you at a show. Um, I've been binging your podcasts and appreciating the perspectives you've been covering. Thanks. Um, if you ever need a guest, I'm living in Santa Rosa, which is not that far. Okay. Besides working on Swamp, previously helping adapted my parents' company. Okay. I totally get it if you're not reviewing anyone out of choice. Okay, so this is just you saying that you want to come on the podcast. Um, Yeah, maybe. All right, this question is from Jan, my girlfriend. She says, why can't girls do 23 and me? All right, so this is a joke, and uh, it started on my Twitch stream. And basically uh, what happened was somebody came into the Twitch stream, and I was talking about how I'd just done 23 and me, and... Uh, and somebody was saying in the chat that girls can't do 23 and me <clears throat> and the reason why uh and somebody i guess believed them in the chat and were like yeah yeah girls can't do 23 and me and then i looked over at the chat and was like oh yeah that's true actually girls cannot do 23 and me and somehow uh some lie got propagated in the chat saying that the way you have to send the dna in is to fill a blender bottle full of cum uh, which is not true. You just have to fill a little vial full of spit. Uh, and then, I don't know, for some reason that has become a question on my Twitch stream almost every time now. <laughs> um, yep. Apparently girls can't do 23 and me because they can't fill a blender bottle full of cum according to my Twitch chat. Uh, all right. Kevin Fisher says, Hey Bill, how often are you starting or writing new tunes versus doing things like mixing, mastering, and putting finishing touches on things. I think this is completely unanswerable. Um, I would, if I had to guess, starting and writing new tunes, I would say I start or write a new tune a couple of times a week. Mixing, mastering, putting finishing touches on things, I also do a couple of times a week. So I don't know. Do I think coronavirus is going to change the music industry in any long-term way? When slash if things are back to normal, are you going to keep a busy touring schedule or are you going to cut back and diversify revenue streams more? I mean, I think I've already diversified my revenue streams quite a bit. Um, I do t teaching, uh, tutorials, sample packs, music releases. Um, I get royalties from like films that I've scored. Uh, I write music sometimes for Facebook. Um, like I do a lot of stuff other than shows to, to get money going, which is awesome. Uh, and I don't know, I mean, it'd be interesting to see if, if coronavirus changes stuff long-term and gets a lot of people streaming online. I mean, I guess we'll see if that, if that happens. Um, as far as having a busy touring schedule, I mean, I'm, I probably will go through phases of having busy schedules again, but, um, yeah, it's kind of honest, it's honestly pretty nice to have a, have a bit of a break. 
Uh, in case everyone isn't already asking this, any tips for staying healthy and productive in the studio while quarantined? Um, yeah, just you know, try to eat good food, try to sleep eight hours a night, try to maybe do some squats and push-ups and shit. There's not much else you can do whilst you're quarantined, right? Maybe try not to eat too much. Like I'm, I'm a, I definitely can overeat sometimes. Uh, maybe don't look at social media too much either. I noticed I've been looking at the news and social media way too much and it's definitely like getting me a little bit depressed. All right, Naprig says, besides writing the melody inside the envelopes or serum like you mentioned on the Dirt Monkey episode, are there any interesting shortcuts or techniques Tipper used while mixing inside the box? Uh, no. Second question, what advice do you have when it comes to choosing studio monitors? Um, are there any brands out there that are suited better for surround sound? I don't know. I don't use surround sound speakers, honestly. Um, I just use stereo speakers. Like uh, most people listen on stereo, so I figure it makes sense for, for me to have stereo speakers, seeing as I want to make music that most people can listen to. Um, I really like Barefoots. The MM27s are sick. I'm super happy with them. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's really up to you. I would say just go to a shop and listen to a bunch and see which ones you like the balance of the most and then just get those. But I think what's more important is the room, like the acoustic treatment and stuff. All right. Aside from all digital runs, like you discussed with Matt and Anthony, what should an artist technical writer be to ensure they're not getting left in a situation that ruins the show? I mean, I think digital runs are definitely a big part of it. I would also um, say you should make sure that uh, you stipulate the sound system should be able to go to whatever decibel level you want it to be, which is probably, I don't know, 95 dB or 100 dB or something. Um, and you want it to be free of RFI, hums, pops, clicks, distortion, anything like that. And maybe just ask for like the type of monitoring on stage that you that you like, um, whether that be wedge monitors or on stand monitors. And sometimes people like to have subs on stage with them as well. Um, I, it doesn't bother me really. Uh, Tipper I know likes his subs turned off when he's on stage. So up to you what you like there. But I would just say, uh, yeah, just, I don't know, after you've played a few shows, you'll figure out what you like and what you don't. And then you just ask for the stuff that you like and hope that they get it for you. All right. Are there any software synths that are better than others when it comes to creating a part, a patch with Foley and nature samples? Uh, yeah, that sounds mostly like you want a sampler. So maybe like contact libraries would be the move for that kind of stuff. And <coughs> if you had to choose between getting an Access Virus TI2 or a complete Control S88 and complete 12 Ultimate, which would you go with and why? 100% complete 12 ultimate and the complete control S88 because there's just so much more you can do with it. The access virus is pretty limited. I think you can only synthesize a couple of sounds and they all sound very access virusy. I actually sold my my virus like a while ago um, and just upgraded to complete 12. So, <laughs> so that answers the question. All right, moving on. Eurisco Pebanito. That's an interesting name. Hey, been pondering what the fuck to even ask you for way too long because you're such a huge inspiration and I wanted to tickle your brain the same way you tickle mine. All right. Um, do I like any cartoons? Yes, I love Rick and Morty. Uh, Adventure Time, I haven't actually really watched that much. Uh, but yeah, Rick and Morty is sick. And also, I guess South Park I really like as well. I just think they're both really intelligent cartoons. Uh, have I heard of the Fermi paradox? Uh, from your understanding, it's basically like there shouldn't be any detectable aliens according to some fancy math. All right. 
like, well, there should be detectable aliens. Okay, gotcha. Um, yeah, you, you think like there should be aliens and therefore like where are they? I think that too, but also like you got to imagine like not only are we dealing with an infinite amount of space, we're also dealing with an infinite amount of time that goes forwards and backwards, right? So who knows, maybe like aliens invented, like existed for a split second in the amount of time that time has existed for in a completely different place in the universe. So I think it's also likely that maybe um, if you like looked at it on a big scale and you just saw like flickering stars all over the universe, but all of those flickering stars were actually a life form like aliens coming into existence and then coming out of existence like that flicker represented that entire event um i would say you'd probably see like a yeah something like lots of flickers happening in the universe like life forms and societies and stuff forming and then unforming pretty quickly just because the amount of time that exists and in completely different places too so i mean i think it's also likely that we would never just exist at the same time as another life form or an intelligent life form um what's the most amount of lsd i've ever done fuck um i don't know maybe like 300 milligrams or something oh you said you later that night you found out the tabs were actually triple dosed and had 300 milligrams per tab damn so you did 600 milligrams that's yeah that's a lot i've probably done 300 oh sorry micrograms i've probably done like 300 micrograms that might be the most i've ever done or maybe more i don't know hard to say uh, all right. Thanks for those questions. Next one, Duffery. Do I prefer tortellini or ravioli? Man, I've been eating canned ravioli lately and it's fucking horrible. Uh, so maybe tortellini just so I don't have to eat more ravioli. Uh, one way, what are some ways that I discipline myself to be constantly creative? In the past, you've told me there's no such thing as writer's block, just lack of discipline. And I'm wondering what strategies you use to keep yourself in check. Yeah, so I don't... Um, uh yeah i don't think there is such a thing as writer's block i think if you sit down to write music you should be able to get something done whether or not it's just making sound design uh making sounds or making drums or um i don't know let's say just i don't know writing some beat or making a fucking bass patch or something i don't know there should be something you can do but you should be able to discipline yourself to do something for like an hour a day right um and I feel like people a lot of the time when they're like, oh, I'm just, you know, having writer's block and don't feel like writing. It's really they're just being lazy and they just don't want to do anything that day, which is fine. I mean, it's fine to feel that way. But if you also feel like you should be doing something, then maybe doing it would make you feel a little bit more, um, I don't know, like better about yourself. And I just like to not feel that that feeling of lazy, like laziness and like I haven't done anything. So I like to work a lot just so i never feel that way uh what kind of ravioli is my favorite definitely not annie's canned ravioli it's so bad how are you liking living in sf any new flavor oh is it adding any new flavor to your tunes uh sf is cool i think it is adding flavor to my tunes and i think it's because of the room honestly the room sounds a lot different to my old room uh, and i also like the fact that i can just write music at home now it feels like the whole process is pretty comfortable and i don't like you know um have to get out of my element too much like i can just be at home drinking coffee and chilling having a nap and then still being at the studio uh, which is nice 
All right. A bunny VTuber. What's the funnest thing you do in the studio? No track due. The goal is just to have fun. Um, hmm. That's a good question. I wonder maybe, I don't know, just trying to write a piece of music really fast or something like that is pretty fun. Uh, any tips on keeping it going like those days where your mind just wants to surf online, but you got to keep putting in time towards your 10,000 hours. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Maybe if you don't feel like writing music, you shouldn't. I'm not super convinced that that is a thing. Like, I don't know why people feel this pressure that they have to do it. I guess if you want to get music finished, it's obvious that you have to do it. Um, but if you don't feel like doing it and like why make music your career if you don't feel like writing it in the first place? Because then you're just going to be in this position where you have to do it all the time or you're going to feel like you have to do it all the time. Um, so in that sense, maybe it's like not even worth doing all the time uh, if you don't feel like doing it for that reason. Because uh, like people think there's this thing where when uh, maybe, I don't know if people all people think this, but it seems like there's this idea that when you get popular – that all your problems go away or like when your music career gets bigger and you're successful that all of these problems go away but they don't they just get harder like the bigger you get the more you're on schedule to get shit finished the more you're on schedule to for shows and all of that sort of stuff it's like all the same creative issue that you have when you're a smaller artist still exists but it's just all amplified um and therefore it's like unless you want to be in that position i don't know Maybe it's not the putting in 10,000 hours and becoming a musician may, may not be the goal. All right, uh, related but not on tips. Wait, tips on not getting stuck in the studio. Um, <clears throat> oh yeah, Dylan has this term ant fucking, like getting rid of small problems. I mean, that's what Ben from Ganja White and I does, right? He like ant fucks everything from the start. And I don't know, it works for him. So I think like, for not getting stuck in the studio, you should just do whatever works for you again. Um, for me, I personally like to, if I'm getting stuck, just figure out a way to generate some sort of stimulating idea, maybe like get a sample off splice or maybe, I don't know, just do some, some stupid thing, like put 20 distortions on my master channel just to see what happens or something like that. Um, uh, what has been beneficial for me in general for m overall mental health? Dude, exercise 100%. Exercise changed my mental health for the better more than anything. Um, yeah, I would I would say exercise is like the, the number one thing. And also probably drinking less alcohol. That was also another pretty big one. Uh, all right. Thanks for the questions, Bunny. Uh, Charles Lillo. Your question is, have I ever worked for an extended period of time on a song or release and changed the lead or main melody right before sending it off? And if so, do you think you made the right choice or do you regret the change? Um, you know, I think I have done this before. I haven't, I can't like actually think of any particular example where I've done that, but I definitely think I have. Um, I don't know if I regret it, if I can't remember it. Uh, all right, moving on. Mike Dizzy says, Bill, been a fan for years now. I have seen you start so many tracks and it seems like it's never an issue for you to get started. Could you list a few of your favorite ways to come up with ideas for starting tracks? And if you have time, maybe talk about if you know if your track is loud and clear enough to compete with what's out there. All right, one sec. 
so again, the, <clears throat> the thing that I keep saying is uh, this stimulus generation thing is something that I just, I think, do naturally where if I'm stuck or I don't have an idea, I just have a lot of go-to tricks where I'll just make some crazy big rack of arpeggiators or <clears throat> maybe like start fucking around with a new synth or I don't know, just like mess around with some weird step sequencer thing or I don't know, I just have like a bunch of tools and a bunch of ideas in my head to generate uh, content. And once that content gets automatically generated by some of these tools, it sparks ideas in my head because I'm like what I would call a reactively creative artist. Um, so I think just developing these kind of tricks to sort of get you out of these ruts if you're in them is uh, beneficial to do. Uh, in terms of checking if your track's loud and clear enough, I mean, Pro L2 just has a luffs meter on it now, so you could just check that. Um, and then, yeah, making sure it's clear enough. We already talked about referencing in this podcast, so I would just reference, um, and that should be pretty good for getting you in the in the place of brightness and mid having enough mids and enough volume and stuff like that. All right, that was an hour and a half of me talking to myself. Uh, cool. Um, well, hopefully. Uh, that wasn't super boring to listen to. I'd be kind of interested to get some feedback on this one and see if people are interested in it and let me know what you want me to do for future podcast episodes whilst we're all dealing with this coronavirus stuff. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.